This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. New York City's Lower East Side has witnessed a severe decline in its Jewish population in recent decades. Yet every morning in the big room of the city's oldest yeshiva, students still gather to study the Talmud beneath the great arched windows facing out onto East Broadway. In Yeshiva Days, Learning on the Lower East Side, published by Princeton University Press in 2020, Jonathan Boyarin presents a uniquely personal account of the year he spent as both a student and observer at Masifta Teferis Yerushalayim, and a poignant chronicle uh, of a side of Jewish life that outsiders rarely see. Boyarin explores the yeshiva's relationship with the neighborhood, the city, and Jewish and American culture more broadly, and brings vividly to life its routines, rituals, and rhythms. Jonathan Boyarin is the Diane G. and Thomas A. Mann Professor of Modern Jewish Studies at Cornell University. His books include Jewish Families, Mornings at the Stanton Street uh, Shul, A Summer on the Lower East Side, and The Unconverted Self, Jews, Indians, and Identity of Christian Europe. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for joining us. Thanks for the conversation. I'm looking forward to it very much, Zalman. I'm glad. So I wanted to start off by asking you uh, to talk about your background. I always ask uh, the uh, guests to talk about their background and what brought them to uh, produce the work that we're discussing. And in your case, given this particular uh, uh, book, it's especially uh, a relevant question. So tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to to write this book. I, I think the first, um, the first part of the answer is the same as I would give if you were, if we were talking about my previous book about the Lower East Side, Mornings at the Stanton Street Shul, because the first part of the story about how I came to spend time at the Yeshiva on East Broadway, for me, has to do with how I came to be a resident of the Lower East Side. I wasn't born there, like a lot of people who still live in the Jewish community on the Lower East Side, and like a lot of the fellows who still study in the Big Best Medrash at MTJ. I came from a Jewish chicken farming community in Farmingdale, New Jersey, and not necessarily from a particularly observant family, but certainly, uh, certainly, there, there, there was there was yeshiva background. If you 
went back a, a, a generation or two. I talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, and my idea of shul was formed in my early childhood by the very Hamish, informal yet traditional services in the Jewish Community Center in Farmingdale, New Jersey. And I didn't really want to go to shul once we left that in my still relatively early childhood until I was on my own and moved to New York City and started graduate school and found myself um, a cheap apartment on the Lower East Side, which was the first time I'd felt at home since I left Farmingdale. And I said, well, when I find a shul that feels like Farmingdale, uh, I'll start going to shul again. And someone I knew through Yiddish circles, somebody involved in rescuing Jewish material culture on the Lower East Side said, you know, I know a place where they're re they'll really welcome you. They need you and they'll welcome you. Uh, and that was the 8th Street Shul, believe it or not, on East 8th Street between Avenue B and C. That's east of Tompkins Square Park. And we're talking about 1979, 1980, when half of the buildings on those blocks were, uh, were bombed out, essentially. Uh, the not just there weren't many Jews there, there weren't many people living there at all. And some hardy souls who had moved down to Grand Street and didn't want to give up their shul um, kept the place going and were indeed happy to have um, a guy with a ponytail walk in and count for the minion. And in some ways, that was that was the first time that I became aware of the ways that the the, the lower, lower East Side Orthodox community is is tolerant, stretches itself in an unusually pretentious and welcoming way. Unusually pretentious or unpretentious? Unpretentious, unpretentious. Yeah, I mean it's it's so unpretentious. It's almost pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> to, to channel Jackie Mason for a second, um, and then and then um, in the early early 80s, my wife Alyssa Sampson and I went to Paris for a year, where I uh, I, I did fieldwork for my dissertation in anthropology, which was a study of elderly Polish Jews in Paris, and these were not religious people; they were dafka not. Uh, these were mostly ex-communists, Yiddish speakers amazing people with incredible life stories, and I admired them tremendously. Um, but one thing I noticed was that they had not been able to pass much on to their children. Their children were not part of a community in the way they had been. And even the Yiddish culture that they that informed them that was so rich, I understood, was rich in part because it was informed by the traditional Jewish culture that they were rebelling against. And when Alyssa and I moved back to the Lower East Side, I at least, I think she shared this, had some sense that um, you can't really pass on Jewishness without some everyday frame of this is what Jews do and this is what Jews don't do. And we also realized that to the extent there was still public Jewish life on the Lower East Side, it was sustained in the Orthodox institutions. So I started going back to shul again, but I also had a feeling, and 
as 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 you probably know, Zalman, I also have a big brother who's a big Talmud Chacham, and he was he was becoming a professor of Talmud, and I was becoming a Yiddishist, and there is a certain hierarchy of prestige in Jewish studies between those uh, between those fields, and I didn't want to be an Amaretz. And just like somebody had told me, hey, there's a shul where you'll fit in, somebody told me, hey, there's a, there's a class for adult beginners at the Yeshiva on East Broadway, MTJ. So I first walked in there uh, probably one day in 1984. And for about three years, most, most weekday mornings, Monday through Thursday, uh, spent two hours with two young rabbis and um, Yossi Rosenbaum and Shmuel Daitel. And one of them taught us Chumash for an hour, and one of them taught us Gemara for an hour. And we were in the best medrash with everybody else. Uh, somehow it was this little, this little cure of It was a cure of table, right? <laughs> uh, but without the heavy-handed uh, philosophizing or moralizing, we were brought in to learn. And, and and that's what it's still like at MTJ. Anybody can come in and sit down and learn. Um, and then I did lots of other things. I uh, eventually I went to law school. I was I was in an office for a number of years. I was teaching out of town, and then as as happens to um, people who have the old-fashioned kind of academic career. Eventually, it was my turn to, to my my turn to have a year of leave. That was in 2012. Not an academic year, uh, a, a spring semester followed by a fall semester. I had a couple of projects that I promised to do during those semesters. They were well in hand before 2012 started, and so I found myself in shul on the Lower East Side, in the Bialystoker shul, talking to uh, Rabbi Yisachar Ginsburg, who appears under a pseudonym in the book, uh, my friend, and uh, saying I had a, that I had a year coming up, a year's leave, and I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to spend it. First thing he said was, wow, I'm in the wrong job. They're giving you a year. <laughs> <laughs> paying you for a year and you don't have to work. <laughs> and then he said, why don't you go to the, to, to the Rosh Hashivah Shir? And I immediately said, that's a great idea. So after 25 years in which I stepped into MTJ maybe half a dozen times, uh, I ended up spending that year in the Rosh Hashivah Shir. I was introduced to one of the young rabbis um, who learns... With college students, I guess they thought that that uh, you know I'd be a good fit for him, and I, I learned with him, and he introduced me to a couple of I would say the leading Talmidim in Reb David's stu- students in Reb, in of Reb David's uh, morning Talmud lesson. So, so you mentioned Reb David. So you mentioned before the Rosh Yeshiva, the leader right. of the Yeshiva. Right. What is the name of the leader of the Yeshiva? And, and tell us a little bit about him. Sure. Um, 
his his name now is 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 Rabdovid Feinstein of blessed memory and as you know uh, we just lost him less than a week ago and and uh, even though I'm not there uh, I'm I'm connected and I'm hearing and and people and this not a young man but the sense of loss is immense um, and something that one would not guess at from walking into the yeshiva or, or seeing the very intimate room in which he taught his his Talmud classes. Um, Reb David was the, the son of Reb Moshe Feinstein. Really One the, of the... The, the major ultra-Orthodox uh, um, uh, um, uh, legal decisors of the second half of the 20th century in America. Absolutely, except I'm going to take a bit of issue with the term ultra-Orthodox, because I, th- I think part of the spirit of MTJ is we're not modern Orthodox, we're not ultra-Orthodox, we're doing it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. We're following Rabosha. This is Orthodox. We're following the Halacha. Now we're not trying to be too modern and we're not trying to show everybody how how from we are. This is how we do it. Um, right? right? A, a, a different kind of traditionalism. Sure, sure. I think and, yeah, well, yeah. And 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 uh, Reb David, who is referred to as the Rosh Yeshiva who took over for um, almost 35 years after his father's passing and whom I call in the book Rebbe, because that's also what we called him, um, was a not a charismatic person, but a very, very much beloved person, a very available person. Um, not an author of uh, of long, learned commentaries, but somehow he achieved the the status of the ultimate decider, the ultimate posik on major topics in Jewish law for the United States. And once again, as I had in the mid nineteen eighties, I found a remarkably congenial um, milieu for me as somebody who was only slightly less illiterate than I had been in the mid-1980s to sit and learn with guys who were doing it full-time and had been for years. And I will add, and this is not, not a gratuitous thing to add because it wouldn't necessarily be the case in other yeshivas, they thought it was cool that a professor was coming in to study with them. Um, they, 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 they were, I, I never got the sense of, you know, what are you doing here? What do you really think? Um, in, in, in MTJ, they call me the professor. I tried to get them to, except for, except for uh, one friend whom I call Nasano in the book. And as you noticed, uh, he's the one who calls me Yonis and Aaron. And I really like that. So that's how I came to the place. Right. So uh, you 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 uh, touched on a drop about the 
the kind of uh, ethos in this particular yeshiva on the Lower East Side that you spent this time um, uh, participating at. And um, if you could tell us, uh, in, in what ways do you think that um, that the the students, uh, uh, the members of this yeshiva were similar? And in what ways do you think that they were really different than the typical yeshiva students you would find in an orthodox or ultra-orthodox yeshiva? Well, first of all, they're, uh, I mean, beyond a certain minimum, uh, which might be 18, 19 years, they are all male. I mean, that's, it's the, it's like any Orthodox yeshiva in that respect. And that that's a complex issue in itself, of course. Um, but they are of all ages. That means that there are uh, young men who are of college age, who might be doing it for a couple of years before they get married. There are a few men in their 30s and 40s who have decided that this is what they're doing with their life, who draw a very, very modest stipend from the, uh, from the institution. And honestly, because I didn't ask and I didn't do interviews and I was trying not to be too nosy, I can guess at how their families survive, but I don't always know. I know that in some cases, this is not atypical for the yeshiva world. Uh, it's common for, for their wives to have certain professional jobs, uh, speech therapist, physical therapist, as well as taking care of the household, raising the children, right? So the contribution of women is immense here and, 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 and shouldn't be... Um, shouldn't be underplayed, even though to some extent uh, I have been fairly accused of underplaying it in the book itself because the women are not there. Um, but there are also people who come in for a couple hours a day, and then there's another professor, right? He comes in in the morning, and then he goes up to Baruch College to teach uh, computer computing for accounting students. Uh, there are people who have jobs as mashkichim and um, or or teachers at MTJ who can come in for a couple of hours, and there are people who are retired from a range of jobs. In some ways, yes, there is a kolo, meaning a, a program for people who are already married, um, uh, and then. Uh, continuing their their uh, rabbinic uh, um, learning uh, after marriage. That's right. That's right. And some people are doing it indefinitely. And there are always a few uh, few men there who are studying for smicha, rabbinical ordination. Uh, last few years, it's been a two or three lovely young Bratzlaver Hasidim who come in from Brooklyn to study in Yiddish, which is fairly unusual at, at MTJ, but they just they just fit in beautifully there uh, somehow. Um, and but I I would almost say if it weren't if it didn't somehow detract from the honor of the place, which of which I'm very protective. I'd almost be tempted to say this is the community best medrash. This is the community study house on the Lower East Side, more than a separate institution with, um, you know, with imaginary walls around it. Aha, aha, and and you 
you talk about the fact, and you sort of just alluded to it, that in the in this yeshiva, unlike in a typical yeshiva, there isn't one uh, program of study. So you just mentioned that some of the people who join the 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 study hall are learning to uh, for smicha. They're learning for rabbinic ordination. They're not even learning uh, the typical uh, texts of the Talmud. And even when it comes to the text of the Talmud, different students are reading different books. Right. They're, Right, and this is not typical in a in a, in, a, in a typical. That's right. That's Orthodox right. We should, we should explain further that that in a, in a typical Orthodox yeshiva, if it's uh, let's say if it's big enough that that that, that it, there are ranked classes, then uh, then at least everybody in a class will be studying the same text, and will be um, keying their individual or paired study, which is how they spend most of the day off an hour or two lecture that is given by a, a more experienced uh, reader in that particular text. At MTJ, under, under Reb David, um, there were a number of people who would attend his, his lessons, his shear, and would spend a good part of the day preparing for his shear and then reviewing what he had just said. Um, but other people are studying on their own. Other people are studying in pairs or small groups. There's a range of uh, any, any, any uh, Talmudic text is fair game. Any recognized major uh, early modern to modern legal code or commentary is is fair game and study groups kind of form and dissolve naturally right so this is a very different system <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a very different system I, I i recount in the book uh stories that were told to me about that when attempts were made to sort of regularize it and have everybody studying the same, and the person who told me said it lasted for a couple of months and then it kind of <laughs> broke down. <laughs> you know? And 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 I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this in public for the first time. Um, a a a neighbor who was uh, very observant in both senses, right? A good analyst. <laughs> And 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 a knowledgeable and practicing Jew said to me, uh, and I've phrased it this way: there are some, there are some yeshivas that we call kirov yeshivas, right, where um, where the object is to draw in unaffiliated Jews and make them feel more warmer toward the tradition and more knowledgeable and 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 become resources for the community to to enlarge the community there are other yeshivas where uh it, it's it's not a nice way to put it but but where they almost have their brand right where especially a prospective uh in-laws family would have a sense of what they're getting if you know if you say he's a Chafetz Chaim guy he's a Torvadas guy Right, someone who went to a particular ultra-orthodox yeshiva. Right, with a certain style, a certain level of orthodoxy, a certain range. Uh, MTJ isn't like that. And what my friend said was, 
At MTJ, the people are there because they want to be learning in a best metrish. And I think that actually captures a lot of what's special about it also. Right, right. And and related to this, you mentioned in the book that uh, I got the impression that many, if not most or all of the members of the study hall at, at this yeshiva uh, were sort of older than the typical yeshiva student. And at the same time, it seemed like many of them were more worldly than the typical yeshiva student. You recount that they talked about movies or popular movies or books like The Third Man. And they also uh, had a less of a, I don't know, a tolerance or inclination to support some of the more recent stringencies in halakha, in Jewish law, uh, for instance, uh, in terms of just how strict they were about the gender segregation uh, when there were public events separating men and women, that they tended to be less severe than is common these days in uh, Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox circles. And I'm wondering, in what ways did you feel that this, both the age and the kind of um, the Weltanschauung or the, the orientation of the people at the yeshiva, in what sense did you feel that it impacted their approach to learning, their approach to the Talmud, their their interpretation of the Talmud, and so on? It's, it's a really, really great question. Um you know, I just, I, just to expand on what you were very aptly summarizing from the book about the mood of the place, um, I'm sure you noticed the one, one illustration I have in the book, right? There is one figure. It's labeled figure one, right? It has no caption. Uh, and, and I took this photograph, and I'm not a great photographer, but I couldn't resist. One of the... Um, in terms of a, in terms of a, a masara, a, a a a tradition, and a sense of what is special about this place and where it comes from, a lot of that comes from, uh, from the image and the aura of Reb Moshe Feinstein, right, our late Reb David's father, um, who issued a number of uh, authoritative and radical rulings at the same time. Um, my my rabbi at the community synagogue in, on Sixth Street a number of years ago, Rabbi uh, Ari Berkowitz, Avi Berkowitz, sorry, said to me, "You know the definition of a Haredi Jew or ultra Orthodox, is the term you're using, is somebody who accepts all of Reb Moshe Feinstein's stringent rulings and none of his lenient rulings." <laughs> And the definition of a modern Orthodox Jew, you can get this, guess this, is someone who accepts none of Reb Moshe Feinstein's <laughs> stringent rulings and all of his lenient rulings. I, I, that's really phenomenal. I just want to interject that I remember explicit. I grew up in the Lubavitch Hasidic community uh-huh. in, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and I distinctly remember uh, people, rabbis in the community saying uh, when um, the 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 status of Ramosha Feinstein came up that they said he was a tremendous Jew, a tremendous uh, you know scholar and 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 uh, um, halachic uh, authority, 
but we don't accept any of his colors. <laughs> we don't accept any of the of the leniencies that he introduced, whether about whether you know in terms of Jews uh, uh, using chol of akum or or, or non chol of Yisrael milk that's not specifically handled by Jews, which is a big issue in the in the uh, Orthodox world, and and many other things. We totally accept. Rabbi Feinstein as a as a person as a as a as a sort of religious figure, but we don't accept any of his uh, leniencies. So I, I'm certainly aware of this type of um, uh, um, embrace, sort of partial embrace right. of the man. Right, right. So uh, so you mentioned Hall of Yisrael, the question, the uh, com- complex question of whether. For dairy products to 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 be, uh, I don't know if not kosher, but but appropriate for for consumption, certain aspects of the process process have to be handled by Jews, and Rav Moshe held at least that it was not a requirement where it would be unduly burdensome to only use uh, such dairy products, and in fact in the People my age and younger who grew up in the neighborhood remember that in the yeshiva and in the summer camps, um, it was regular OU milk that was used. Um, Not with the extra stringencies. Not with the extra stringencies. So there are people in the yeshiva who want, want to respect that and maintain that. They're not going to suddenly say, because everybody else only has the more stringent standard, we're going to adopt that as well. But they're also aware that most of the people who come into the yeshiva at this point do hold those stringencies and may not understand that the uh, more lenient standards are acceptable at MTJ as well. So the one photograph in the book is of a commercial cake that, uh, that is kosher, but not Chol of Yisroel, on a table with a handwritten note next to it saying, this cake is OU, not Chol of Yisroel, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> right? So they wanted to tell people, but they also wanted to say, it's, it's kosher and, you, and, and you're, welcome, you're welcome to have it. Um, in some ways, that's a losing battle because... Because the Lower East Side community has been shrinking somewhat, and because the tone is set more by look, uh, you're a sociologist, Zalman, so it's not going to surprise you when I say that as an anthropologist, I noticed a long time ago that the more people want to be in a certain club or neighborhood, the more uh, exclusive it can be. So in these dynamic, growing Orthodox communities, the tendency to stringency uh, has been and and is indulged more than on the Lower East Side. And I I, I think I think the Rosh Hashivas all Reb David Feinstein I'm talking about now my my Rosh Hashiva uh, was very aware of this and was trying hard at once to sustain his father's standards and legacy and to respect and to make sure that M- the MTJ community was was part of, of the larger centrist and, and Haredi 
uh, orthodox world. In in um, once in Shir, I remember we were reading a Rashi, and he was talking about Rashi, and 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 he said, you know, the real frumis call him the Heiliger Rashi, <laughs> right? And he said, and we should too. All right. All right. So, but, so Rashi is is a commentator on the Talmud and the Frumis. The Frum is the ultra orthodox. The very right, orthodox. Right. So, so in other words, he was recognizing some you know, <laughs> some it, distinction there, but saying that's fine. That's fine. That's that that that's great. That's great right. that 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 they have that attitude. Right, they view Rashi, this uh, medieval commentator, as halig, as holy, yeah. uh, not just as an intellectual con- contributor to the the discourse. Right, and and I'll t- I'll tell you another one, and then and then you or I can explain the term I'm using here. Um, I I I actually I kept going to the Shia, and I I mean, without the this damn COVID, I mean I would still be going to MTJ, and I hope to, I really miss it. It wasn't just like a, a year of fieldwork and then then I'm out of there. Uh, I love the place. I feel attached to it still. Um, but um, but one time during that year, I think, we were studying the Tractate Gitan, which is about divorces, and there's a complica- complex discussion of uh, a witness one witness signed his name in Hebrew and another witness signed his name in Greek. And Rashi has a discussion of what he thinks signing the name in Greek means. And I came in one morning, I had thought about it a lot. And I said to one of my study partners, you know, I think Rashi's wrong. He said to me, you can't say Rashi's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You can't say Rashi's wrong. Maybe he didn't know the Matthias. All right. He didn't know the facts on the ground. <laughs> facts on the ground, but you can't say he's wrong. All right. Well, so this goes to my previous question about sort of what are the boundaries of the discourse, and you That's mentioned right. this in the book right. that 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 there are boundaries. It's a very bounded. Uh, um, environment uh, and the discourse itself of the the study of the Talmud or other uh, classical Jewish texts that that are being studied, there are boundaries to to you know just what kinds of questions could be asked, what kinds of questions are allowed, and yet the boundaries. Uh, my sense is that they are uh, much more sort of expansive or or, or um, more freeing um, than they would be in a in a sort of typical. Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox yeshiva? I think that's true. Um, And I have to be very careful here, both because I was always very careful about pushing them. I was more interested in learning what the rules are than trying to see what I could get away with. Um, And... And partly because, frankly, it's it's fun to play within the rules if the rules give enough play. Um, but one of the things I noticed, and I have a have an analysis at one point. I hope I hope I explained it. I'm not sure where <coughs> it was clear that clear that the relevant rule is ultimately all statements of rabbis of a certain stratum called the Tanayim. Those are the rabbis whose statements are collected in the Mishnah and in other scattered dicta that were preserved. 
form a single system. So wherever possible, the rabbis of the Talmud and then the commentaries that build upon them will try to reconcile seeming contradictions. And I realized at one point that um, it would be very easy if you simply said, well, this one statement from that Tanaitic period that's quoted simply disagrees. It's from a it's from the same it's from the same period, but it's a different tradition where this whole issue was categorized differently. <laughs> you know, and it's not a big problem. Um, when we discussed it in I think it was the same topic, when I we discussed it in the Shear with the Rosh Shiva. I spoke up, and I didn't speak up much, and often I wasn't heard. But I said, I said, Rebbe, it seems very forced. And he said, it is forced. They want you to work really hard at it. Right. So, so he, the Rosh Hashiva, didn't feel that the fact that the interpretation to reconcile these two seemingly contradictory statements from two different people during the same um, uh, period in history, uh, the fact that you needed to work hard to 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 reconcile them, that doesn't in any way uh, challenge the 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 authenticity or the truthfulness of the interpretation. It's it mean it's 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 this odd phenomenon where the 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 stronger is the unspoken shared assumption that you can lean on this tradition really hard and it's not going to break. The more you can lean on it, um, I, I, and I'll give you another moment. Um, I don't know if this is unique to MTJ but it was a treasured experience for me and, and really something that came up, didn't get into the book, partly because it happened after I'd basically finished the book. Um, we're studying the, uh, the tractate Midos, which is not about good character traits, but about the measurements of the temple. And there's a discussion of the big stones and the walls and the dimensions of the walls and so forth. And it's very hard to make it all kind of line up. And a group of us were preparing for for this year, three or four of us studying at a time. And I just stopped a second and I said, you know, what we're trying to do here is to, through talking, assemble a shared image in our separate heads of what the temple looked like. We are trying to recreate the temple in our heads. And the, I was just extremely moved by that, what we're trying to do. Right. But but many times, even if it's a more uh, sort of mundane topic or a topic that, se- that seemingly you know, should be you know, fairly straightforward, like if one ox goes to another ox, it turns out, that there's a tremendous possibility for all sorts of complications, and especially once you get into the different strata of the Talmud, so the text itself, then the sort of first-generation commentators, the second-generation commentators, third-generation commentators, it could be very hard to, as you say, make it all line up, uh, especially if you believe, as some Orthodox Jews do, that not only was the Bible, the Mishnah, which is an early rabbinic compilation, and the Talmud, which is – 
and a, 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 dis, a discussion and explication of the Mishnah, but even much, much later uh, commentators going into the middle or early modern period were all written, quote unquote, with divine inspiration. Uh, when you put that type of 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 um, you know viewpoint on all of these texts, then it really does become very very difficult, if not impossible, to make them all reconcile in such a way where, as you said, you can't say Rashi was wrong. You can't say that e- even other more recent commentators were wrong. Then again, it's very could be very very difficult to to make them all sort of line up in a way that's still logical. And and at the same time, you mentioned some of the later commentators or mid, m- late medieval, uh, the, the Tosafists, right? Rashi's, one of whom was, at least literally was Rashi's grandchildren, grandson. Um, enormously detailed and long commentaries. This is for, for people who have not seen a page of the standard edition of the printed Talmud. Um, there are... There are folios with there are about three lines of text surrounded by thousands of words in tiny print of commentary, um, raising uh, raising seeming inconsistencies between different portions of the, of of this huge compendium called the Talmud that nobody would have ever thought of as problems until they were raised, and then going through. Uh, uh, I don't want to say somersaults, but 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 uh, going through rich intellectual exercises to resolve them, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it's very hard to understand. And and when when Reb David Feinstein Zatzal didn't understand it, he would say, "We don't speak the language of the Tosafists. If we if we knew their language, we would understand this better. Uh, it's time to move on." He would struggle with it. But eventually he would say, it's time to move on. And at a certain point, he would say, uh, this almost this is bitol Torah, right? To, to obsess where you're not getting it is cheating you of the opportunity to keep learning new, new things. Yeah, so, I, so, a cer- so a certain degree of, 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 of humility and almost of... Uh, Rahmanus for for everybody else, right? Of of compassion for everybody everybody else in the group, um, moderates that 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 attitude toward the Heiligerashi. Right, and and I remember when I read one of the passages where you describe this uh, sort of attitude or procedure on the part of the Rosh Hashiva, where he would try as hard as possible to reconcile things, and then if it didn't go, he said, "Okay, you know, it's time to move on." I thought that that was really a profound kind of balancing, on the one hand, uh, trying to to uh, you know accept the the holiness and the and the the sort of uh, validity of every aspect of the Talmud and all of the levels of commentators. And at the same time, being intellectually honest and saying, look, you know, he didn't say it explicitly, but it's sort of implied we might not be able to reconcile all of this. And let's not try to, you know, pretend that we could, because that would really be a disservice uh, uh, to our own intellects and our own, you know exactly capacity. exactly and 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 related to that a somewhat different nuance is uh his procedure 
as a teacher, uh, his 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 son Rabbi Morty, Morty Feinstein uh, said in his eulogy uh, last Sunday um, one thing, which also I kind of wished I had put this in my book. That, but it, was, it rang so true. He said that when when his father taught his Talmud class, it was each time as if he himself were studying it for the first time. No way was it the first time. <laughs> but he wanted to he wanted to present the difficulties to to the class, not like show off here here I've got it now and I'm gonna tell you how to read this. We're gonna struggle through this um together. And that meant first reading it, whatever the unit was, without any of the commentaries, not bringing in the Rashi immediately line by line, learning the text itself, then bringing in the Rashi, then bringing in the Tosos. So um, to people who are familiar, you could say, oh, Reb Dava just taught a, a, a Gemara, a Blatshir with Rashi and Tosos. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that simple. Uh, and that's why uh, one of my study partners um, said to me one day, People ask me why I've been sitting in, in, in the Rosh Hashivah's Shir for so many years, and I tell them because I want to learn, I want to, I want to, I want to learn how to learn like the Rebbe learns. Hard to summarize. Right, right. And speaking of, of methods, um, I think it's really uh, fascinating, your book, the kind of methodology that you use and the particular style, um, you know, of, of, of putting it all together. And you, you uh, note that... Um, that you don't um, necessarily include, uh, so it includes a lot of stories, a lot of very rich uh, details of your experiences at this yeshiva, studying in, uh, by yourself, studying in peers, studying in, in larger groups, studying with the Rosh Hashiva, um, and, and what you know happened during that year and in other um, periods of time when you were spending time uh, uh, at this yeshiva, um, but you uh, you yourself note that you don't always include an analysis or commentary that that would be common in anthropological works. Uh, why did you choose uh, to to do it this way? First of all, because I'm not as young an anthropologist as I once was, and look, with my previous book about the Lower East Side. Uh, mornings at the Stanton Street Shul. Uh, one of my severest critics is a cousin and close friend who's a social psychologist. And since I started in this business, he has loved my my work with, with Jewish memoirs, my ethnographies. He doesn't like it when I write critical theory. He finds it really pretentious and just sort of trying to you know make a name for myself. Uh, after he read my book about the Stanton Street Shul, he said, you know, the theory is there if you know what you're looking for. And I kind of hope to be at that stage where this is an intervention in anthropological discussions of the so-called split between the religious and, and the secular. And really trying to emphasize the ways in which um, I understood how they were talking, and I could talk that way too. And they understood how I was talking, 
and there, there, there were things I could bring in at the edges that did fit. In other words, emphasizing the overlap in the Venn diagram rather than the here are two worlds confronting each other. That's part of it. Part of it is um, I knew from the time, I don't know from the time I walked in, but from, from the time where I thought, you know, I might, I might write a book about this, that I would only do so if I felt I was writing a book that I could bring into the best medrash that I could give to the people there. And part of that is what you say about them, what you don't say. And part of it is also writing it in a language that ordinary people can understand. You know, Zalma, when I, um, in, I mentioned in, at one point I was a lawyer and I went to law school. And I had already published a fair amount of anthropology and critical theory when I went to law school. And in my first year in law school, I wrote a long paper actually about the, uh, the Kyriosiol Supreme Court case, which was still fairly new then in the 1990s. And I wanted to publish it in, in, the, in, the, in the law journal. So I brought it to the writing teacher, the writing instructor at the law school. And a few days later, he gave it back to me. He had marked up the first couple pages. He said, I didn't have time to mark up the whole thing. But to paraphrase Jackie Mason, can't you write like a normal person? <laughs> so I've been trying very hard since then, you know, especially when I want normal people to read it, to write like a normal person. And the last influence on the style, I do mention it in the book, is my hero, Walter Benjamin. And that, that uh, especially the parts of the book where it's, it's, it's one brief anecdote with a title after another that are intended to be a mosaic that, that produce a composite portrait um, that I got especially from Walter Benjamin. Right, right. Well, one thing related to the style that was interesting to me is that uh, you often pr uh, presented stories that either you said, well, it could it could be that uh, the person did this for this reason. It could be that the person did it for this reason. Really not sure, you know. And who who cares which you know what the reason is? And and then other times you would present a story and you wouldn't say the, that last piece that I just said, but it was obvious that it was an ambiguous story. But it's really not clear, you know, does it mean this or does it mean that? And and it's it, it seemed again that you you kind of took pleasure in uh, presenting stories that could be interpreted in multiple different ways. I I love that kind of story. <laughs> I mean, you know that's 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 what most of the stories in the Talmud are like. It's true. Well, well, speaking of which, it's interesting that as I was reading the, your book, and I, I took so much pleasure. I mean, it's a really fascinating, fascinating work. So thank you for 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 birthing it to the the world and sharing it with us. Um, as I was reading it, I kept on thinking. First, I thought, well, this is an anthropological work because you're an anthropologist. And then, as I kept on reading, and especially when you would have, you would describe a story where one speaker referenced a second speaker or a second person, you know, and it suddenly dawned on me this is a lot like the structure in the Talmud, where you have a statement from one rabbi and that rabbi quotes another rabbi. 
And I wondered if that was intentional. And then just before I let you answer, I, I should say that sometimes in your in your work, uh, it seemed to me that we crossed over from the Talmud to Hasidut, to Hasidic stories. And there was a, one of my favorite pa- uh, um, moments in the book is where you describe a quote-unquote miracle where a piece of paper that was placed into a, a, a um, rabbinic text uh, supposedly disappeared. And then I thought, it sounds like this book is a work of Hasidic lore. So, so what is it? Help us out here. What, what's going on here? Well, actually, my wife read the book and she said, oh, it's about you. <laughs> um, as, as, as my ethnographic writing usually is, I'm, I mean, and since my first book, I'm present in it. I don't know how to write otherwise. The, the anthropologist is very much present. I mean, the anthropologist is the medium. Uh, I think it's dishonest for the anthropologist not to be present. In the ethnography, in some way, although I I may overdo it at certain point points. One one of the reviewers for the Stanton Street Show book called it solipsistic. <laughs> That's a little harsh, but I I, I get that. Um, look, some stories about Russia yeshivas about misnagdic rabbis are not that different really from stories about Hasidic rebbies also. Um, usually, usually these are about things that look like miracles and create a sense of wonder, but don't require a belief in the miraculous per se. In the various uh, printed and recorded eulogies for Reb David Feinstein that have been coming out in the last few days. Uh, one, of them, um, one of them quoted him as saying, you know, it sounds like people might think that what I say is going to happen happens, or when I give a bracha, a blessing, the thing wished for happens. That, that's because nobody reads tells over the times it doesn't work out. <laughs> I mean, he said that himself, right? And the truth is, Zalman, a lot of the Hasidic rabbis would tell you that too, right? They weren't, ne- they didn't necessarily promote so much the idea that they had this special skill. When they were blessing people, they were encouraging them. They weren't saying, I've got the goods and I know what's going to happen necessarily. And, uh, you know, if there are Hasidic stories, why shouldn't there be uh, tales of them? My brother, my brother Daniel, says that this book should be called Tales of the Misnagdim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm glad at least I wasn't totally off the mark. <laughs> right, right. right. Okay. And look, and look um, there is more rapprochement between the Hasidic and the traditional yeshivish worlds. There, There, there aren't aren't these these deep walls anymore. Right. And speaking of the Venn diagram and trying to find the soft spot that you know where the different uh, uh, circles meet, um, it was interesting to me uh, towards uh, well throughout the book, but especially towards the end, you talk about this idea of Torah lishma to learn Torah, quote unquote, for its own sake, and um, and you essentially end up arguing uh, 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 that it's possible to look at the at the yeshiva. Um, 
the, the studying that happens in the yeshiva as an example of this um, uh, uh, studying for its own sake, and that this is, in a way, a kind of resistance to the neoliberal market forces that we think about that are you know uh, pervade our society, where even. Uh, in higher education, secular education, uh, so much of the thinking and motivation around pursuing um, uh, a degree is, well, what, what can I get out of it? What can I get out of it? The utilitarian side of it. And that ironically, maybe to some people, the yeshiva, which may seem like such a, a, a foreign and um, um you know, just a totally different world that actually the kind of studying that they're doing there, which is really not based on some kind of utilitarian outcome that they're hoping to achieve, is a kind of resistance of all things to neoliberalism. And I, I, I thought that that was really um, just a fascinating take. Yeah, I mean, look, well, we, uh, I mean, with any luck, um, people will be arguing for years over that claim and I made in this book, and I'll be thinking about it more. Um, but I can amplify it a bit by saying that when I first spent time in the yeshiva in the 1980s, and I was uh, had just gotten my PhD, and I knew that academic job job prospects were were pretty dim. One of the things that attracted me about the, uh, about it was that it was an alternative. Um, intellectual and uh, an alternative space for intellectual discourse where you didn't need a particular degree to participate and where it wasn't a publisher perish situation and to some extent 30 years later i'm saying the same thing um and it only now what i'm saying is it's not about production and it's not about reaching reaching the goal so that you so that you've now accumulated more and the idea i mean in 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 my more sentimental modes and maybe i was smart enough not to put this in the book um but i said to people in the best measures a couple of times i said you know now i understand why they say that if you're really really good in this life this is what you get to do in the world to come there are there are moments Right. I'm not saying I'm not saying I don't get bored or sleepy or alienated when I'm sitting and learning with people for a few hours. But there are moments where the rest of the world falls away. And you're working together in this groove. Um, and it's like Lahavdil being part of a jazz quartet that's just jamming really tight. Uh, it, it, it does sound very enticing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in some ways, I've, I've emphasized the enticing parts. I know that. But, but it's funny because you mentioned in the book that 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 the yeshiva um, that you you participated in doesn't really do much uh, publicity. It doesn't really. I mean, there's a, a, a annual dinner, but it's really kind of a low key operation. They don't do much PR. And I thought as I was reading it. Maybe this is the PR for the yeshiva that, you know, anyone who reads this, or many, not anyone, many people who read this might really be enticed uh, to to participate and to try to uh, experience that intellectual bliss that you just mentioned. We'll see. Halavai. If, I mean, if they do, if they do, uh, I hope they find it. 
I hope yeah. you find it. And, um, and, and, and also with all due respect for the traditions that MTJ represents, I, I, I am obligated to say that these are opportunities uh, that should be available to Jewish women as well. Right, right. As you uh, said, this is a all-male space. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, uh, before I let you go, I always ask uh, guests uh, to talk a little bit about any uh, uh, thing that they're working on now or their next project, if they could share with us. So uh, uh, if you yeah. could share anything. Yeah, actually, um, together with my son, Jonah, who is also a Yiddishist, and I'm pleased to say he's not a struggling academic, Uh <laughs> But deeply loves Yiddish and Yiddishkeit, and 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 deeply committed to to the welfare of Jews, especially in New York City. Uh, he and I have started working on translation of I was going to say a volume. It's actually two volumes, published in Yiddish in 1923 and 1928, edited by a man named Mordechai Lipson, whom we don't know enough about yet, and it's called Die Welt der Zelt which means we translate it, people tell the story. And it's a collection of anecdotes about Anshe Shem, notable Jews, mostly in the 19th century, mostly but not all rabbis, mostly but not all in Eastern Europe, mostly but not all religious figures. Uh, Some of them actually anti-religious figures. There's a story about a famous... uh, Apicorus in a certain town, a heretic, um, who, when he was dying, said, um, called his his most loyal son over and said, look, I, I have you and one other son and a daughter. And your brother, he's converted to Christianity. There's no way he is going to say Kaddish, the memorial prayer, for me. Your daughter's, your your sister's a girl. She can't say Kaddish. So I implore, I am imploring you, son. Please, don't you say Kaddish for me either. <laughs> wow. Well, that that really sounds like. <laughs> An amazing story and a, a very, a very <laughs> that's colorful a typical, collection. That's a typical, but it gives you a sense of, of of how rich and complex and dynamic this world was, all compressed into these little one paragraph, one page anecdotes. So that's what we're working on now. Wow, I very much look forward to to seeing that when that comes out. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. I really appreciate it. And. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation and um, it's really gratifying to me to, to, um, to have a conversation that, that is based on, on, on such a rich and generous reading of the book on your part. Thank you, Zalman. Our pleasure. Uh, That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.